Good morning. I'd like to welcome you back to a new week and another edition of our Anchored in the Word Morning Reflection. And the passage that we will be dealing with throughout this week is Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 33. So if you have a Bible, I'd like to encourage you to take it. And uh, let's all turn together. And this morning, my goal is for us to look at some introductory thoughts as we set up the passage that we're dealing with today. So again, that's Luke chapter 11, and we'll begin reading in verse 29. And when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas was a sign unto the, unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation, and condemn them. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear of the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And the men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, putteth it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. Now this passage of scripture has a very heavy emphasis on how dangerous and how foolish it is for someone to reject God's grace. Now, when we talk about God's grace in this particular context, we're talking about his gracious self-revelation. And I, I want us to kind of begin with some introductory thoughts about this concept of God's grace being something that gives us access to the truth. It's not just his saving grace by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we trust Christ, but it is his grace that brings the gospel to us. And it is his grace that gives us access to the law. And it is his grace that convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And it is his grace that gives us persistent opportunities. And I think it's important for us to recognize that how we respond to what we're given really says a lot about us being either wise or foolish. And this generation, the one that Jesus is living amongst, is a generation that sadly, the vast majority of them responded foolishly to this example of God extending his grace. And he's going to confront head on. So first of all, let me give you a summary statement and then think a little bit about this issue of God extending grace by giving us opportunity to have access to the truth. God's grace provides a compelling case that calls all of us to repent and to trust in Christ alone for our salvation. This passage reminds us that rejecting this grace is the most serious sin that a person can commit because it ultimately ends in eternal destruction. Now, I want to remind you and remind myself that God is not obligated to give us an infinite number of opportunities to hear the truth or to give us an infinite number of confirmations of the truth and particularly his existence, the validity of scripture, the person of Christ, the nature of the cross and the resurrection, God isn't obligated to just continually give us opportunity. It is his grace that gives us access to the truth. And I'll also add this, there are not, uh, there's, there's really no end to the potential questions that a person could come up with. As soon as you uh, ask one question and the scripture answers it and conscience answers it and someone brings an answer through the word of God, um, another question pops up. There's no end to those potential questions. And faith starts with questions, objections, 
being answered by the word of God. And then faith is built on facts. I want you to recognize faith is not just some leap into the darkness or some feeling that I have in my heart, but faith is a decision to depend upon something that is fact-based. So when we talk about a person trusting in the gospel, it's a person who is relying on, depending on the, the factual truths of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And what the Bible teaches about his person and what the Bible teaches about how we're reconciled to God. Faith begins with facts. And in the, in the grace of God, he gives us multitudes of examples, compelling reasons to believe that these things are true, to trust in Christ alone as our Savior. I think about the example of creation. God's existence is self-evident. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, it says that through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are and are seen are not made by things which do appear. In Psalm 19, verses 1 and 3, he says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. When I look out into the sky and I look up into the stars and I look through a microscope and I, I watch the sun rise and set, I, I look at the order of creation, all of those things, they bear witness, testimony to the fact that there is a creator. He made these things. He is a strong and wise and good and well-ordered and a loving of beauty creator. He made these things. And in Romans chapter one, he tells us that these truths are truths that people by nature they suppress. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Another way to put that is the truth that is available to them because of their moral bent against it, their natural inclination to rebel against God as creator and one whom they are answerable to, they take the truth and they suppress it and they ignore it. He says, that which may be known of God is manifest in them. He has showed it unto them. The invisible things from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. The Bible teaches that every single person has enough information to know that there's a God that they are answerable to, who, has, uh, who is the moral standard of right and wrong. There's enough information that is self-evident that people are guilty on the basis of their rejection of those basic truths. And when we talk about salvation in the gospel, obviously you have to accept this basic premise before you can have faith alone in Christ. You have to accept there's a creator. I'm answerable to him. He is the standard of right and wrong. I fall short of that standard. I'm answerable to him. I need to be brought into fellowship with him. I need to be reconciled to him. And the sin debt that I have incurred by my own actions needs to be dealt with. Now, if I accept that basic series of premises, that is foundational to me understanding that Jesus died for my sins. He rose from the dead. His righteousness can be imputed to me if I will simply turn to him, place my faith in him. But I cannot do that unless I accept those basic truths. That's why that is foundational. In Acts 17, when Paul is at Mars Hill, he says that the God who made the worlds and all things therein, seeing he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he need anything, 
seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times that were appointed, the bounds of their habitation, and in him we live and we move and we have our being. So by looking at these scriptures, it is clear that the biblical viewpoint is that everybody is guilty because they have enough access to information that they reject, that makes them culpable. And so the question is, what do we do with the, ac the access we have to truth? Well, in these scriptures, we're going to see many people reject that grace. They reject that opportunity. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And that is folly. Creation's order proclaims that there's a God who made it. He is wise. He is powerful. He loves beauty. Our conscience bears witness that there is right and there is wrong. And there is a, right, a righteous standard that we are answerable to. History demonstrates that, in fact, there's a God in heaven. He preserves humanity and he personally cares for his creation. The word of God proclaims the essential truths that we need to know so that we can be brought into reconciliation with God through the gospel. We can walk with him. We can enjoy him. We can fulfill the purpose that he has designed for our lives. So with all that in mind, I want to pose some questions that a person has to come to grips with in light of all these things. Every one of us should ask, who is Jesus? The Bible tells us who he is, but some people are unwilling to even ask the question and then dig into the firsthand accounts of scripture to know who Jesus is. Second question, how do we explain all of these prophecies that were fulfilled in the life and ministry of Christ? Hundreds of prophecies that were literally made hundreds, even thousands of years before the incarnation. How do we explain the claim that he rose from the dead? You know, amazingly, during the time that Jesus is living, there were all these firsthand accounts of people who said, I saw that he died and I have seen him risen. And what, what people did was they didn't say, well, in fact, it's a lie. They tried to cover it and they tried to hide it, but they couldn't confront the fact that in fact, there was real evidence for this thing taking place. How do we explain this stunning transformation in the lives of the apostles? I think about how after the crucifixion, those disciples were hiding in an upper room because they were fearful of the Jews and they thought that they were next. And then within a very short period of time, they are preaching at Pentecost. Here is Peter, the same one who three times denies the Lord. And he's saying, men and brethren, you have crucified the Lord of glory. The one whom the prophets talked about throughout all the Old Testament. And they say, what do we do? He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Think about the Apostle Paul and the stunning transformation that took place in his life. He hated the gospel. He hated Christianity. He hated the testimony to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Yet what does he do? He turns from this hatred and this animosity. And he embraces these truths. And he's willing to sacrifice everything for these truths, even to the point that he dies as a martyr. Why do I bring these things up? is to simply say that there are compelling reasons to believe on the Christ, to depend on his finished work on Calvary, and to depend on his righteousness and resurrection. And so I ask this question, are you ready to dig into this text and think about this concept for a little bit this week? I pray that you will. And I remind you of this final thought in our closing. There are limitations to the questions 
that we will have answered. At some point, we have to make a choice. The choice is clear. We should embrace the gospel and trust in Christ. There is no other place to turn to for salvation with God. May the Lord help us to learn a lot this week and to be encouraged in his word. Have a blessed morning, and Lord willing, we'll meet again tomorrow. Bye now.